As we hear God's word from Psalm 32, beginning in verse 1, this is a psalm of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through all my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The 2018 edition of the Tour de France concludes today. I'm kind of sad about it. I love the Tour de France. Uh, On many levels, one of the things I like about it is they do a primetime special in the evenings from about 8 or 9 until 11 p.m., and it's a great way to end a summer day, and I do it every summer in the month of July. And then, of course, there's that glorious weekend that happened last weekend when you've got two fantastic events in Europe happening simultaneously with the British Open and the Tour de France. I love the Tour de France on so many different levels. It's 21 stages throughout beautiful uh, parts of primarily, but not exclusively, France. Uh, There are flat stages, and then, of course, there are mountainous stages in the Alps, in the Pyrenees, and it's a grueling race. It's a race uh, this year. The the distance varies slightly from year to year, but this year, uh, over 21 different stages, they covered nearly 2,100 miles. People sat on bicycles at minimum for 85 hours over 21 stages and rode, once again, 2,100 miles, and they will conclude today in Paris. It's a fantastic race. It's a fantastic feat. It's a pretty amazing reality. It's also embedded within a sport that over years and even to this day is still rife with controversy. Uh, Many of you would know, even if you're not a cycling fan, uh, that the sport uh, has a black cloud over it, and at least it has for years and years, and it is working to come out from underneath this black cloud. And the black cloud, essentially, that it has over it has to do with drugs. Performance-enhancing drugs, things like EPO, blood transfusions, other PEDs, etc. And so while this is an amazing feat that people are doing that takes an incredible amount of discipline to be able to do it, incredible hard work, people move uh, into mountainous regions and live their life, that is professional cyclists, with a whole team of people just so they can ride these mountains all the time to be able to ride in these grand tours. And the grandest tour of them all 
is the Tour de France. And so when you start to think about that and you start to think about the reality, it starts to become plausible that there might need to be some help or at least the temptation for help to run 21, to ride 2,100 miles, to spend nearly 100 hours on a bicycle uh, in these amazing stages. You can understand the temptation to potentially look for a little bump, a little bump that is actually illegal. Well, today, cycling, they say, is as clean as, it's ever ha- as it ever has been. And I don't have reason to doubt that, and I want that to be true. However, we definitely know in the late 90s, throughout the 90s and into the early 2000s, cycling was not clean. And when you think about the sport of cycling, and you think about it not being clean, and if I were to ask you what name stands in the forefront of the sport of cycling, it not being clean, performance-enhancing drugs, etc., that name would be Lance Armstrong, right? Everybody knows Lance Armstrong. Uh, for one, prior to him getting busted, um, he was going down in history as the greatest cyclist ever, which is saying something because Americans traditionally are about as good at cycling as they are at soccer on a global stage. Um, it's been likened to a team from France playing in the NFL. Like, how good would a football team, an American football team from France, stand in the NFL? That's basically how good Americans are at cycling. But Lance shattered these categories. Lance broke all these records. Lance did some unbelievable things. In fact, it actually was unreal. And he progressively, slowly is starting to, on some level, through gritting his teeth, clenching his fist, public shame, betrayal, and dismay, it seems begin to come clean. He's not coming clean at the rate that anyone wants him to. He's not coming clean uh, to the extent that anyone wants him to. But in my opinion it's hard to argue that there is not some progress with regard to Lance coming clean. Candidly, I want him to come clean. I know he cheated. I'm still amazed at what he did on a bicycle. I feel very similarly about another sport that I love with Tiger Woods. Like, I want Tiger to win many more majors. I want Tiger to progressively come clean with the sins and the scars of his past. Don't you? I mean, don't we all want redemption to some degree? We sure want it for ourselves, and it's amazing how quick we are to judge others, to judge others um, lacking contrition, to to judge others, you know, lack of depth and breadth when it comes to owning their own indiscretions and sins. And I admit that Lance has not made it easy on himself to see him in a more favorable light. He actually hosts a podcast now that I've enjoyed listening to called The Move. And he's pretty candid on it. And he seems pretty open on it. And he seems pretty aware on it. And actually, he seems on some level free. Gaining some level of peace with who he is and the sins of his past. He was actually interviewed on another podcast recently called Freakonomics. 
And the host, who seemingly is warming like others, not all, especially the people that Lance has really hurt individually and personally, and I don't know them, and he didn't hurt me personally, so I don't have anything to say about that. But this host, like me, seems to have an increasing redemptive view and hopeful view of Lance and his life. And he's asking Lance about how people deal with him. And Lance talked about a story in this podcast that happened to him last summer in 2017 in Denver. He was going to host his podcast through a cycling championship in Colorado. And Lance talks about coming out of his Airbnb and coming out to call the Uber. And the Uber's on the other side of the street. And it actually is sitting on a curb right outside of a bar. And he says, this is a part of Denver where there's a, plenty, there's a lot of restaurants, there's a lot of bars, and a lot of people are out on the patio. And so he comes out and he's immediately recognizable uh, to these people. And he said, one guy particularly yells out, to the, yells out to him, hello. And Lance at this point is thinking, oh, hey, dude, what's up? This is, you know, and think he's going to have a conversation. And then the next thing that flows out of the guy's mouth is expletive after expletive about Lance. And then Lance said it wasn't only that guy, but literally the entire patio of people come to their feet as he's catching his Uber and just start almost in unison screaming expletives at him. And of course, he says he can't wait to get into his car. And then he said he got in his car and he was freaked out. He said, no matter what, nobody likes to feel like this. Nobody wants these things said about him. And so he had this indignation within him. He said, I've got to do something about this. And so he called the manager of the restaurant and let him know what happened. And the manager of the restaurant said, I'm so sorry. You know, that won't happen again. And he said, and then one more thing. Would you do me a favor? I'm going to give you my credit card number, and I want to buy everything that they are eating and drinking on that porch throughout the rest of the day. And I thought that was pretty powerful. Does it undo everything that he did before? No. Does it show some level of change and contrition, potentially some level of peace and freedom, some taste of what it might mean to be clean? I'd like to think yes. You see, here's the truth. We're all sinners. Nobody's the way they're supposed to be. We live in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. We have committed sin, we have been sinned against, and then we just live in a generally sinful atmosphere of a broken world. And so it's unavoidable. David, the writer of Psalm 32, knew what it was like to be a sinner too, in a myriad of ways, and in one really famous way that he recounts in more detail in Psalm 51. Scholars say there's no exact or clear evidence that Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are connected about the same event, that is, his event with Bathsheba and then the murder of her husband and then other things that ensued from that. But we do know that David was not unfamiliar with sin. I mean, like real sin, big sin. And as a side note, if you ever read the Bible and think the examples that God puts before us in the Bible are people that are not real, then you're not reading the Bible. David is known in the Old Testament as the man after God's own heart. King David, arguably the greatest figure in Old Testament history. And you know what else he was? A big, fat sinner. Just like Lance, and just like me, and just like you. And Psalm 32 is David working through this reality 
of his sin. And Psalm 32 is an opportunity for David to proclaim in an overarching way the main thing I want us to see this morning. And it's simply this, God forgives sin. It's the main idea of Psalm 32. David is proclaiming from Psalm 32 that God forgives sin. And as a result of that, he calls us to come clean. Verse 6 in Psalm 32, after David espouses the beauty and the loveliness of forgiveness in this proclamation of the gospel. In verse 6, David says, Therefore, we must draw near to God. And that's what I want us to do this morning as we look at Psalm 32. I want us, because God forgives sin, to draw near to Him in confession. Because God forgives our sin, we are called and we are invited. We are liberated not to run from Him, not to hide from Him, not to conceal our sin, but we are invited and called to confess our sin. You know why? Because sin is not fatal. Sin will not kill you. Unconfessed sin is fatal. And unconfessed sin will kill you. And that's good news. Because we all have sin. But it's better news that God forgives sin. It really is an amazing, almost too good to be true relationship. We sin, God forgives. Not simply, not lightly, but truly, and at a great cost. Not to us but to Him. Because God forgives sin, we are called to freely confess. I want us to look at confession in two ways. I want us to look at the battle of confession, and I want us to look at the blessing of confession. Confession, to begin with, really is a battle, and it's a battle that David himself experienced as he talks about it in verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones... Wasted away. Through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. It reminds me of the classic line that surely you've heard me mention before when Bilbo exclaims to Gandalf in the Fellowship of the Ring, I am old, Gandalf. I know I don't look like it, but I'm beginning to feel it in my heart. I feel thin sort of like butter spread over too much bread. Do you feel thin? Do you feel stretched? Our sin actually erodes us from the inside out to make us where our bones waste away. We can talk about this later, but even physically. Like sin has a physical, biological even, Sin is not just a spiritual reality, though that's the biggest reality that it is. But sin has a biological reality. Both our own sin and honestly just the fact that sin exists in the world. Without sin in the world, without Genesis 3, without the fall, there's no cancer. And in the new heavens and the new earth where there is no sin, guess what? There will be no death. There will be no cancer. There will be no illness. 
So sin is massively pervasive in all of our culture, in all of our world, and it's massively pervasive in our own hearts, and it rots our hearts spiritually, but it even rots our bodies physically. It rots our relationships. It rots our emotions. It really is an enemy. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And so there's this battle to grapple with sin. There's this battle to grapple with the reality of the brokenness that exists within our lives. And sin, by the way, one of the things that we have to grapple with right out of the gates as we battle the idea of confessing our sin is just battling the reality of sin, period. Sin is a hard pill to swallow. It's hard to admit that we are sick. In fact, we're not sick. The Bible tells us that we're dead. Uh, British sociologist Sidney and Beatrice Webb in the 1890s um, through the British social welfare movement wrote uh, in her diary, I have staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. And then in 1925, she rewrote in her journal, I have staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. I realize now how permanent the evil impulses and instincts within us are, so much so that mere social constructs and reform cannot change anybody. Sin, without question, is a force to be reckoned with. The Westminster Confession of Faith, in a reworded version, says, Sin is any failure to measure up to what God requires, or any disobedience to His commands. Sin is universal. Sin is, Dorothy Sayers says, a radical dislocation of the heart. Sin is idolatry. One scholar defines it like this. Sin isn't only doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. You see, if we don't understand the anatomy of sin, we will never be able to battle or engage in the battle of confessing our sin. Sin is the suicidal exchange of the glory of God for broken cisterns of created things. It is not that we have come up short of God's glory. Rather, we have just chosen something else entirely. Sin is absurd, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. And we could talk a long time about this, and we don't have time today. I'm not saying that it's not worth getting into some of the pathology of sin, but what we need to know at the end of the day, there is an apparent and inherent ambiguity and absurdity to sin. And we see it right from the beginning of the fall. There's different ways we can explain or try to explain what happened with Adam and Eve, and then in one sense, we just have to bow to the absurdity of sin and to the pervasiveness of sin. Therefore, it's hard to battle sin through confession if we don't understand it. We've got to understand that sin is not simply an action, but sin is a condition. We sin because we're sinners. 
David in Psalm 51, as I referenced earlier, actually exclaims that he is evil born in sin. The Bible is very, very clear about this, and we need to be clear if we're going to battle sin through confession to admit this. To admit it like G.K. Chesterton, to use him again, was asked by a local London paper to write an excerpt, an op-ed on what is wrong with the world. Do you know how Chesterton responded to that op-ed request? He simply wrote, dear sirs, I am. Period. And he sent it in. Chesterton understood what was wrong with the world. He is. We are what is wrong with the world. Us in our sin. And it's a battle to fight this and to embrace it. It's a battle to accept it. It's a battle to look at people like Lance, or you fill in the Lance Armstrong in your life, because these are the people we love to compare ourselves to. Everybody has a Lance Armstrong or a Tiger Woods in their life. And they've become the standard. And if how we measure up to them makes us feel better, then we're fine. That could not be a more unbiblical approach. That could, be not, that could not be a more unchristian approach. One of my favorite singer-songwriters is a guy named Sufjan Stevens. It's kind of weird, pretty profound. Uh, he wrote a song years ago after a um, really famous uh, and a sad story about a serial uh, killer named John Wayne Gacy in the Chicago area. Some of you uh, would know about him, maybe even Uh, were around at the time when this happened. I won't go into the details just because of the subjects in the room with regard to uh, how prolific he was uh, in what he did and then even what he did, uh, you know, following those murders. Uh, But it was horrible. And Sufjan Stevens, uh, in writing an album about the state of Illinois, and each song had had a different point from the state of Illinois, wrote a song entitled John Wayne Gacy, Junior, and he sings this sad, melodic song throughout, and he's detailing the different aspects of John Wayne Gacy's life. Sufjan Stevens is a Christian, by the way, does not perform or write under a Christian moniker, but he is. And he gets to the very end of the song, and I've actually had the privilege in the Bijou Theater of hearing him sing this live. The last verse of the song is this, and in my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets that I have hidden. He got it. He understands what it's like to battle sin through confession because he's accepted, at least in that moment when he was writing that song, that he's as bad off as anybody. You see, we never get to, and we'll get to it in a minute, we never get to reap the benefits and the blessings of confession unless we really do battle with our sin through confession, unless we really know what it's like to have God's heavy hand upon us, to have our bones wasting away, to have our energy sapped and our strength gone out from us. If that's not something you've ever experienced, then you're really not that close to embracing the gospel. But if you have experienced broken bones and heavy hands and energy wasted, and a reality of your own brokenness through your thoughts, through your words, through your actions, then you're a great candidate for the gospel and for the blessings of forgiveness. But it is hard to battle against 
this sin because we're poor accountants. We always think somebody's worse and that we're not that bad. And I'm fearful of this because I've experienced this in my own life, especially when we think about long-term, historic, indwelling sins that reside within us, that haven't killed us yet. How do we know what lies ahead? The Bible speaks about the progress of corruption. Is that something we want to mess around with? Just because it hasn't gone beyond that point yet? I only struggle with lust in my mind. I've never manifested it in the flesh. Yet. I only struggle with envy and greed financially. I've never actually done anything unethically in my business Yet, only loathe her as a mother in my mind. I mean, I haven't really gone viral with the tongue lashing publicly yet. Sin is a battle and we must battle it through confession. Before we move to the blessing, I'll give you two points of application. Something that will help us in the battle. Two things. One, the Bible. It's really kind of hard to hide from sin the more you read the Bible. And you realize that Lance Armstrong, nor Tiger Woods, nor fill in the blank is the standard. But there is a standard. And he just has one name. Jesus. And the more you read Jesus, the more you see we're needy, and we're in trouble. Hebrews 4 says the Bible splits us open. It reveals everything and nothing, is un- and nothing goes hidden. So the Bible helps us do battle with our sin through confession. You know who else helps us do battle in a, a way of application with sin? Community. It's really easy to hide in your sin and isolation. It's extremely difficult to hide your sin and to conceal it in community. And so we need real people to speak real truth into our real lives so we can confess and not conceal. We need people to speak the truth in love to us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, there is no kindness so cruel as to let another person continue in their sin. And then there's another layer of speaking the truth in love. And this is what kind of community that we all need. And unfortunately, very few people experience this. Speaking the truth in love is also having a community where the atmosphere is love that encourages truth-telling. Do you understand the distinction? We do need to speak truth in love. We also need to be in love in a loving community so that truth can be spoken. Well, that's the battle that we have with confession. You know, David experiences a lot of joy because we see that God forgives sin, and because God forgives sin, we're called to freely confess sin. And the way we confess sin is we battle with confession, but we also can see the blessing of confession. You see this, you see this in verses 1 and 2, and our versions always translate... The word blessed, almost every commentator wants that word translated happy. 
And I get that we have some wrong connotations with what it means to be happy, but it's just a better translation. And so hear this. Happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, who is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, and then he goes into the battle. But this idea of the blessing, transgression forgiven, sin is covered. See, there's a reversal here. David's saying, look, I used to cover my sin. I would conceal my sin. But now something different has happened. God is covering my sin now. I don't have to cover my sin because God is covering my sin. I don't have to cover for myself because, this is the gospel, God has me covered. I got you. And so it calls us to confession, to do battle with that because there's a blessing in doing this. We see it pick up again in verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity because you've already covered my iniquity. As if David says, I will confess as a result of this reality my transgressions to the Lord freely and fully because you have forgiven the iniquity of my sin. And here's something amazing, quick little, very brief theology lesson. God does not forgive and regenerate David because he confesses his sin. God has regenerated and brought David new life and out of that David David confesses. And expresses this forgiveness. But God has forgiven David. Therefore, David as a new man wants to confess his sin. Knowing now that he is no longer bound by his sin. But his sin is an opportunity for him to drink more deeply of the good news of the gospel. I love the BBC version of Sherlock Holmes. I don't know if you have seen that on Netflix. But it follows a similar Uh, storyline from the original stories with regard to characters, but it's a great mix and really great TV, great filmmaking. And in season three, uh, Sherlock's sidekick John Watson is going to get married, and he's going to marry a girl named Mary, but prior to proposing to her, or prior to the marriage actually happening, uh, John Watson finds out that Mary is not at all who he thought she was. So he's fallen in love with this woman. He's going to marry this woman. They're going to live together forever. And then there's this big reveal, starting with her name's not Mary. And she's not from where he thought she was from. And there's all this other deep, dark, multi-layered history that she, of course, feels tons of guilt and shame about. And she, of course, concludes, you don't want to be with me. But she said, just in case... Here's everything about me. And she hands him a USB drive. It's modern day. Sherlock Holmes. And then she leaves him. And then on their next meeting and their occasion, John Watson comes to her and she says, did you read it all? And he said, I didn't read any of it. And then he says, the problems of your past are your business. The problems of your future are my privilege. The problems of your past are your business. The problems of your future are my privilege. That's the gospel. 
That's what David experiences in Psalm 32. God saying, I have separated your sins as far as the east is from the west. Did you know if you go east that you can never go west? If you could walk the circumference of the globe heading east, guess what? You would never go west. And God has separated our sins from us as far as the east is from the, ra- the, ra- the west. Our past sins are our business. Our future sins are Christ's privilege. That's why the great hymn writer Horatio Spafford can say, My sin are the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. That's the blessing of forgiveness. There is a battle with confession, but there is this blessing of confession. You might recall that I said in the beginning, intentionally provocatively, that sin is not fatal. Sin does not and will not kill us. But unconfessed sin is fatal. And unconfessed sin will kill us. One caveat to that, that's true for us. You know who that was not true for? Jesus. You see, because for Jesus... Sin, not his own because he didn't have any, but sin was fatal. Our sin. And therefore, because sin was killed on the cross through the person of Christ, sin that is confessed does not have to kill us. And that's the good news of the gospel. I'm going to pray for us as we continue to worship. Lord, we thank you that you've given us a real book with real people that's really true. And today is evidence that you know us, that you made us, that you speak to our hearts. Because the truth is our hearts are riddled with guilt and with shame, with brokenness and with sin. We are not the way we're supposed to be living in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. I pray that you would give us grace to battle with the confession of our sin, knowing that ultimately the war has been won by you on the cross. And as a result of that, I pray that you would help us to reap the benefits and the blessings of confession through the gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.